Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, it is good to gather together as your people to worship you in truth and spirit, knowing that because of the work of Christ, we are able to come into your presence to worship you. We thank you, Father, for the justification that we just sang about, knowing that only because of his work are we able to know that we have the salvation that comes from you. And we give you all the praise because we know that left to ourselves, we would have never come to you in repentance and sin. We pray, Father, that you would cleanse us from all of our sin. We thank you, Father, that we can know without a shadow of doubt that we are in Christ if we have trusted him and him alone. We thank you for this great salvation that we can meditate upon this day. And as we study your word, Father, we pray that we would have a greater understanding of what we have been spared of and what we have been given because of the work of Christ. And we pray, Father, that not only here, but whatever church preaches the gospel, that today many would come into your kingdom in true repentance and saving faith in Christ. We pray, Father, that you would bless our sister churches throughout the world and that your kingdom would continue to grow as you have promised. We pray for those who need your healing hand upon their body, that you would be gracious and merciful to them. If it be your will, that you would spare their life and renew their body with strength. We pray for those, Father, that you choose to take to glory, that you would comfort them. We pray, Father, for those that are unable to be here because they are away. We ask that you give them safety as they travel and bring them back to us quickly. Pray for those, Father, who would not be here due to lack of concern for their own spiritual needs, that you would work in their life and bring about conviction of sin and Cause them to see their need to be with your people on the Lord's day to worship in truth and spirit. And we pray, Father, that all that would be done and said this day would be pleasing in your sight and that you would be glorified. And this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn again with me to Luke chapter 16. As we continue to look at this story that we began to look at last week, as we looked at the introduction of it, I want to read this passage again. Luke chapter 16, beginning with verse 19. 16 verse 19 says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fed from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried to the angels, by the angels, to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off, afar off and, and Lazarus in his bosom. 
Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am in torment in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great guff fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from here there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, and that he may testify to them, unless they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, the one rise from the dead. Now we are studying the story that Jesus shares here on this particular occasion, and we see that there couldn't be any greater difference than these two individuals. We have a rich man who had plenty of food, who was clothed in purple. He had servants, he had a fine home. Everything that a person would desire, it seems that he had. And then you have the second person, Lazarus, who simply had nothing. He was a poor beggar. His body was full of sores. As he was laid at the rich man's gate, the dogs would come and lick his sores. Now, it's significant that this story is given to the Pharisees primarily, because they are the ones that are represented by the rich man. We see that this rich man saw that Lazarus was insignificant. He really never even noticed him at his gate. And we remember that Jesus himself has pressed upon the religious leaders of his day time and time again that he came to save that which was lost. He came for sinners. He came for the ones that were unwanted. But yet they themselves despised those kind of people. So therefore, Jesus is giving this story to show them who they are, to cause them to look into the mirror and see that they are just like this rich man. And if they continue in their ways, they will end up like this rich man in eternal damnation. They had the mindset that because they were Jews, that they were of the Abraham covenant, which they thought was the covenant that they had come up with, not the covenant that God had spoken of in the Old Testament, that they were okay. And Jesus, of course, seeks to expel this idea that they have in their head. And he draws back the curtain and he reveals the end result of this rich man because he was consumed with self. And he reveals that both the rich and the poor who live a life that is consumed with self, will be cast into an eternal hell. It may not be an actual story, but it's a true story. In other words, we have to understand that both the rich and the poor who ignore the gospel, 
who ignore what God has clearly revealed to us in Scripture will be cast into eternal hell. So therefore, we must understand that God is a just God and that God must punish sin. And He will punish sin in those who reject Him. And we see that these religious leaders continue to reject Him. So therefore, Jesus is clearly revealing to them what their ultimate outcome will be, that they will spend eternity in misery. Now this story, as I've mentioned, is spoken to the Pharisees who had hardened their heart against the truth. They had refused to believe what Jesus had taught. They had refused to believe that He was the Messiah. They had already rejected John the Baptist, and now they are rejecting the messages of Christ. They thought that they were okay with God. They thought they had justified themselves. As we saw there in verse 15 last week, it says, And he said to them, You are those who justify yourself before men, but God knows your hearts. So clearly Jesus has pointed out to them that their justification is not accepted by God. He knows their heart. He knows how filthy their heart is. He knows that their heart has not been changed by grace. Many are just like that today. They think that they can earn God's approval. They think that if they do enough things that are, quote, good, that God is going to allow them into heaven. They believe that God brings salvation about as far as a way scale. That the more good you do, the more likely you're going to get into heaven. And the less evil you do, then therefore you're going to heaven. That is the mindset of most individuals. They see that they're not like a Hitler. They're not like a uh, other wicked men that have lived in history, and therefore they think to themselves, well, I'm not as bad as those people, so therefore God will allow me into heaven. And they seek to justify themselves just like these religious leaders did. And so therefore, Jesus has clearly explained the gospel, that they must look to Him and Him alone to his life, to his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Now, our hope is only in Christ alone, his blood and his righteousness. Augustine speaks of two groups of people. And there's only two groups of people, as we see clearly in the Scripture. And he does that in his book that deals with Two cities. And he says in that there are two cities the city of God and the city of the devil. The city of God is begun and is built by the love of God and increaseth, even to the hatred of ourself. But the city of the devil begins with the love of ourself and increaseth, even to the hatred of God. By the contempt of our brother, for he hateth and condemneth his brother, will in a little while hate and condemn God. And that was the rich man's situation. All he cared about was self. He loved himself. And as a result of loving himself, 
his hate toward God increased. And that's how all men are. Now, they may deny their hate toward God. They may say they don't hate God, but in reality, they do. Because when you press upon them their need of repentance and their need of obedience to God, then it begins to show that they hate the God that they say they love. Because they show quite clearly that they love their self instead of loving God. And it's demonstrated in their hatred for their fellow man. Just as in this particular story, we see the hatred that the rich man had for Lazarus. And his hatred was is that he completely ignored Lazarus who was in need. And therefore, we see that he broke the second great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. But you cannot love your neighbor as yourself if you do not love God as God has commanded us. Now today, every one of us in this room are in one of the two cities. We're either in the city of God or we're in the city of the devil. There's no other cities. Those are the only two cities. And we must examine ourselves and see which city we are in. Now, as we continue this story, I want to remind you that death is more frequent than we really want to admit. Do you realize that last week, 11,300 people died in Libya as a result of the floods? Most of you probably did not know it. If you don't look at the news and keep up with the news, you didn't realize 1,100, I mean 11,300 people. Since June, over 2,000 people have died in India as a result of the floods. Now, most of those people in Libya and India were not Christians. The far majority of them were not Christians. And as a result of not being a Christian, where are they spending eternity right now? In an everlasting hell. See, we have to understand that life is a gift from God. It's a precious gift. And when it is over, every single individual must give an account of his life. Many have tried to be little gods concerning their life. In other words, what I mean by that... Well, I'll do with my life as I please. And a lot of people are doing that. You realize that suicide has increased 60% since 2011. In just over 10 years, it has increased 60%. It's reached its highest level ever this past year, 50 thousand people took their own life. Do you know that fentanyl, the drug, has taken 67,000 lives in 2021? That's 150 lives every day. And I don't know what it's going to be this coming year when they finally come because it's going to be more than what we had this past year. 67,000 people have left this world as a result of taking that drug. 
Now, one reason these deaths are happening, sad to say, is because the pulpit has been silent on the issue of death. The pulpit must proclaim life and death. That if people do not repent of their sins, that they will spend an eternity separated from God. Now this story Jesus gives us confronts us with death. And we have to understand that death will come to all of us. Yesterday I was sitting on the front porch with my neighbor, some of you know Miss Frazier, and we were talking about her upcoming birthday, Tuesday. She will be 100 years old. And I said, Miss Frazier, do you realize that only one out of 5,000 people make it to 100? I said, you're going to be one of those ones. I doubt I'm going to be one of those ones one day. But you're going to be one of those ones. And the Lord has blessed you and given you all of these years to live. But yet, death will come. And it will come sooner than most of us expect. Not many of us, if any of us, will live to be a hundred in this room. And we have to be aware of that. And Jesus wants us to be aware of it. And this is one reason why he gave us this story. Now, Lazarus, and the name Lazarus, matter of fact, means God is my helper. And of course, Lazarus needed God as his helper, being a beggar with his body full of sores and the suffering that he was going through, all that was transpiring in his life. The only way that he was able to be able to sustain himself was God as his helper. And on earth, he was in misery. He was more or less discarded by the Jewish society. He desired the crumbs from the rich man's table that were usually given to the dogs. He was more or less seen as a nobody. And in reality, his distress and his disposition of being poor was something that was not even considered by others. But yet he was also, we could say, poor in spirit. Even though he was a miserable man, God had looked down upon him and had given mercy and grace to him. And in God's providence, we see that God has often done that with some of his choice servants throughout history. Even though they had been afflicted with great sorrow in their life, he has blessed them with eternal salvation that cannot be compared to the affliction that a person has on this earth. Even though at the same time he may prosper the wicked. You see that in Psalms 73. Now this rich man, we see he didn't physically harm Lazarus with anything that he did physically, but we see that he did commit a great sin toward him. And that is that he showed no concern whatsoever for his fellow man. He simply ignored him as if he was not even a human being, that if he was not even at his gate, 
He simply passed by him, not even considering what was going on in Lazarus' life. Lazarus was left there without any concern whatsoever. Now this is hard to grasp sometimes, that a person could be treated like this. That even the dogs were fed, but Lazarus was not fed. And it reveals to us simply how foolish and how sinful individuals can be. There's those today that care more from animals, those that are involved in animal rights and all that. They care more for animals than they do for the unborn baby. People can be so sinful and full of hypocrisy. We see that in our nation today with the immigrants. You know, we had northern states telling southern states that we ought to just welcome them all in and bring them all in and have them as our neighbor and everything else. And now that they have been bussed up north, what do we see the northern states saying? Do they show the concern that the southern states have shown to them? No, we see the hypocrisy when they're wanting now to send them back over the border because they have invaded their cities. See, we can often see the real individual when things like this come about in our lives. Lazarus was completely the opposite of the rich man. But one thing they had in common, and that was death. Both the godly and the ungodly die every day, whether they're young or whether they're old, whether they're a man or a woman or a child. Men and women and children die every day, and their souls continue to live in one place or the other, heaven or hell. And there's no other place. And we must be prepared for one of those places. There's there's not a purgatory as some seek to try to teach. No, there's only heaven and there's only hell. There was a gravestone in England. It said, Remember me as you pass by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, you must be prepared for death and follow me. That's good advice for all of us. See, death is no respecter of person. It doesn't take into consideration whether you're rich or whether you're poor or who you are. Death doesn't take all that into consideration. Spurgeon tried to impress that upon his two boys and he would take them out to the cemetery right there next to his home And he would also take a yardstick and he would have his sons measure the graves so that they would see that some were very young when they died and others were very old to impress upon them that God is no respecter of person. Now in this story we see there in verse 22 that Jesus says, So there was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now, God often takes godly people from this earth before wicked people. We see that 
Then the rich man died and was buried. So we see that Lazarus was taken first. God did not allow him to continue to suffer forever on this earth. He took him so that he may end his suffering. Now we have to remember again that this is symbolic. It was Lazarus' advantage that he was speedily taken away from this earth to end his misery. And we see that when he was taken from this earth, immediately he received comfort. It says, was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. In other words, the symbolic here, the idea is that the guest of honor at the banquet table, he was ushered into a glorious state. Now the rich man also died and he was buried. Nothing was said about Lazarus being buried. We see here that it speaks of the rich man being buried. Now when the rich man died, it was probably a big deal. All of his rich friends probably came to his funeral. He, of course, was probably embalmed and all that took place was of the best wealth that he could have to be able to buy the best tomb and uh probably even a statue to put outside of who he was, and there was probably days of mourning, but nothing is said about Lazarus' death. It's startling how sinful and foolish men can be even in their death, wanting the notoriety for others to be aware of them. It amazes me of some of the obituaries that I read, and it's hard to keep from laughing at what people will say about those who have died. But before the rich man's funeral was even conducted, he was already in hell, in torment. His soul was in a state of separation from his body. He was separated from everything that is good, but not so for Lazarus. Lazarus was in glory. And he was ushered into the presence of God immediately. And he experienced what we would say unspeakable joy. His pain was no longer remembered. He was now singing the hallelujah chorus with the angelic beings. But the rich man, we see, was cast into a fiery pit. There was no, there are no adequate words to really express the torment and the agony that he was in. He would have given every single bit of his wealth to be able to spend one more minute out of that place of torment. He desired to be set free of this indescribable pain that he was in. No human being could live in such pain for one second on this earth without taking his life if he experienced the pain and the torment of hell. Men often use phrases such as, it's hot as hell, or that was just like being in hell. Or that is as painful as hell. But they have no idea 
of what they're really speaking about. Because hell is indescribable. Our minds simply cannot fully comprehend the pain and agony and the torture and the suffering of an eternal hell. Hell is worse than we can conceive in our mind. Not only is it the most horrible place of pain, but it is a place without any of God's mercy and grace. And this is where the rich man went, as well as all of those who reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now Jesus also teaches us a little bit about heaven. Lazarus carried into the presence of Abraham, or we could say also, because this is symbolic, that he's carried into the presence of the king of kings. And we're told in Revelations 21.4 that God wipes away all the tears from our eyes. There's no more crying, no more suffering, no more sorrow in this glorious place that God has prepared. He had no food. He had no clothing. He had no home. He was filled with sores here on this earth. But he's welcomed now in the presence of God. Join heirs with Christ forever. His last enemy, death, is gone, was destroyed. And he now has crossed over the Jordan River into the celestial city. As our Baptist faith or our Baptist confession of faith, 1689 says. The bodies of men after death return to dust and undergo corruption. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous are then made perfect in holiness or received into paradise where they are with God. Christ, and look upon the face of God in His light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. What a wonderful statement we have in our Baptist confession of faith. See, when you enter into heaven, you're not looking for your spouse. You're not looking for other loved ones. You're looking for Christ. As it says there, the souls of made righteous in perfect holiness and received in paradise where they are with Christ. And look upon the face of God in light and glory. See, the rich man's light afflictions, which were but for a moment, had worked far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. Then you may say, Pastor, that must be an exaggeration. Did you not read the suffering that Lazarus went through here on this earth? But see, compared to glory, you can't compare the two. Because here this earth is but a moment, a second compared to eternity. I'm not going to spend time trying to describe to you eternity... But just meditate upon that. We, our minds, again, cannot fully comprehend of being forever and ever and ever and ever eternal. But that's what we will be in heaven. 
Eternal glory. So that eternal glory cannot compare to the short afflictions that we have here on earth. Jonathan Edwards said, What tranquility will there be in heaven? Who can express the fullness and the blessedness of this peace? What a calm this is to go to heaven fully and to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here on earth. What a Canaan to rest to come after going through this wilderness full of snares and poisonous serpents where no one could find rest. See, eternal blitz is that which is beyond our comprehension, but it's there in glory in heaven. And it says, angels carried him to Abraham's bosom. This symbolic language conveys the truth to us of how glorious it is there. This expression of this exaltation, which is to comfort us knowing that God immediately at death, the moment we close our eyes in death, that very moment we are in the presence of God. There's nothing more glorious than that than to know that when we leave this earth, we are with God. We see Him face to face. We're not allowed to see God face to face here on this earth. Remember when Moses asked to see God? He said, you can't see me, Moses. You would die if you saw me. Let me show you just a little bit of me. And remember as a result of God showing Moses just a little bit of His glory? His face glowed to where when he came off the mountain and the people looked upon him, they could not take it. They said, Moses, cover your face. We can't take it. And that was just a little bit of glory of God. We will see him in his full glory there in heaven and be able to enjoy it the minute we leave this earth. This is an indescribable moment which eyes have not seen here on this earth. The honor of being carried into the presence of heaven, into the presence of our King and King is more glorious than we could ever imagine. As you read the scripture there in Revelation of what takes place in heaven, we get a little bit of a glimpse of the glory. But, When we are with Him in full glory, we will see Him as He is. Matthew Henry says, Saints shall be brought home, not only safely, but honorably. The rich man may have had a grand funeral, but it was nothing compared to what Lazarus' entrance into heaven was. Abraham was the father of the faithful. So where should the souls of the faithful be gathered except in his bosom? He as a tender father they laid upon, especially at that homecoming there in glory. So the picture is a welcoming home feast. Lazarus goes from sitting in pain and sorrow and suffering there at the gate to this grand banquet with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of the great saints of the past that had preceded him in death. 
The rich and the poor come together at this banquet hall and there is no distinction between them for they are all dressed in the royal robe of Christ Himself and they are accepted as the sons of the King of Kings. What a joyous place that is. But we also learn about hell in this story. We see that the rich man being tormented in hell, it says, lift up his eyes. See, often hell is referred to as below, under, beneath heaven and earth. A place of darkness. And it's described as an endless pit or a bottomless pit where the lost are cast forever and ever. See, the location of hell is not the important thing. What hell is like is the important thing. It is the most miserable place that we could ever imagine, where souls are in misery, in anguish, because they are separated from all that is good and all that is holy. Much more is said about hell than heaven. And Jesus taught more about hell than anyone else in the Gospels. No one can say that the Bible is silent about hell, though many preachers are today. For Jesus Himself gives a great warning of this place which has been created for sinners who never repent, for the wicked. Again, our Baptist Confession of Faith says the souls of the wicked are cast into hell where they remain in torment and under darkness reserved to the judgment of the great day. The scripture acknowledges no place than these two souls separated from their bodies. So the rich man is in utter misery torment, anguish, which is endless. There's no remedy. There's no ceasing. Now that's hard to accept. That's hard to understand. R.C. Sproul said, when asked, what is the most difficult doctrine that you can think of? He said, the doctrine of hell. But it's true. And it's difficult to understand But yet we know that the Bible teaches it. He had entirely devoted himself to the pleasures of this world. He was taken up with those things. He was so self-consumed, never giving God any, any thought. He gave no consideration for his soul. For his mind was carnal. His heart was hardened toward the poor. And is cut off from all good now. He's shown no mercy. He is now under the wrath and judgment of God. He doesn't sit in hell thinking about all those good times that he had while on earth. For those have vanished from his memory. But his soul is now aggravated. It's aggravated by seeing 
this beggar, Lazarus, in the bosom of Abraham. He's thinking to himself, Abraham, I was of the covenant. I, I was under you, Abraham. I should be in your bosom. Not Lazarus. But the truth has now come to his mind. It's interesting that now, now the rich man considers Lazarus, whom he had never considered before here on this earth. He didn't pay any attention to him while he sat there day after day after day there at the gate. But now he is forced to consider Lazarus. And he also sees Abraham, who who must have been a pleasing sight to him, but it wasn't because he was far off. As the scripture says, there was a great gulf between Abraham and him. He had thought he would be the one in Abraham's bosom. But the reality is that he would never, ever be with Abraham. I mean, what a great shock that must have been. He was deceived and didn't know it. He had trusted in the wrong things. He had trusted in the pleasures of this world. He had put his hope in the wrong things. He had never put his hope in Christ. And instead of being with Abraham, he now was with the devil and his demons, the wicked in the most fearful place ever. And seeing Lazarus reminding him of how he ignored him. And seeing his joy made his misery even more painful. It increased his agony. Seeing the kingdom of heaven and seeing that there was a great gulf, as the scripture says, between it and himself. People have an easier time visualizing hell more so than heaven. Why? Because we live in a sinful world. We see war. We're we're bombarded as we look at the news and see what's taking place in the Ukraine. And we see all that destruction and, and misery and filth and slums and evil and sickness and death. And that helps us to be able to grasp some kind of idea of hell. But having a cardinal fear of hell will not cause anyone to come to Christ. And what do I mean by that? What's a cardinal fear of hell? A worldly fear of hell. Well, some years ago there was a drama, Heaven Gates and Hell's Flames, which tried to scare people into heaven. But it only caused a cardinal fear. In other words, the problem with such fear is that it passes away as soon as the circumstances are removed. When the circumstances are removed, the person normally goes right back to his same lifestyle. One may hear about the reality of hell, but he can easily forget about it. I spoke about it last Sunday. How many of you thought about it this past week? 
up until now, again, as we look at it in this sermon. See, when a man's eyes are really opened by the Holy Spirit to the reality of hell, he never forgets it. And a matter of fact, when his eyes are open to the reality of hell, what does he do? By the Holy Spirit, he cries out. He cries out to God and says, God, save me from this terrible place. Save me so that I might conquer sin. Save me so that I might live for you and be your child. John Gershner, in his book, Dealing with Hell says, Hell is a spiritual and material furnace of fire where its victims are eternally tortured in their minds and in their bodies by God, the devil, and the damned humans, including themselves. Their memories and their conscience, as well as the raging and unsatisfied lust, torment them. In hell, the place of death, God's saving grace, mercy, and pity are gone forever, never to return for one moment. How fearful such a place is. Jonathan Edwards said, the punishment and misery of the wicked in another world will be in portion to the sin that they are guilty of. He that commits one act of sin deserves capital punishment. By committing one more sin, that person now deserves a place twice as hot of hell. He's saying two sins. The damned in hell would be ready to give the world if they could to have one of their sins less. One sin less. They'd be willing to give the world for one sin less as far as the punishment upon that sin. How fearful that place is. Finally, we learn something about prayer from this story. Notice there in verse 24, Then he cried out said, and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in torment in this flame. Dip the tip. You've done that. You put your finger, raise it. What happens? One little drop. He said, just, just one little drop. One little drop. The pain and agony he was in. Listen to what Edward said. This will all be the case. The moment man sees the kingdom of God of heaven, he is certain to begin to pray. For he sees a satisfying portion and his heart thirsts after it. If this happens in the world, his prayer would be heard. And for Christ's sake, and by Christ, his hungering and thirsting will be satisfied. 
But if it occurs in hell, the prayer will be too late. For man need can only be satisfied by Christ, and there is no Christ in hell. So this cry for water was the first real prayer that the rich man ever made. And it no longer merely saying words. He may, he may have quoted words, which he called a prayer, but it was never a prayer. But now he, he really is praying. Because these are words that are coming from within. See, if he had prayed such words while he was here on earth, they would have been heard. But there's no real prayer where there's no real sense of need. On earth, he did not have a sense of need. Now this distinction between saying prayers and praying needs to be pressed home. All of us have been guilty of simply saying words, right? At some time or another, and not praying. More often than we would really like to admit. Some have truly never prayed. You may have said your prayers as a child and and thought you prayed, and often prayed in difficult situations. Maybe a test was coming up or you did something you knew your parents were about to discipline you and you began to pray. But you've never truly prayed with Christ as your Lord and Savior and mediator. See, to simply utter words from your mouth without a changed heart is not praying. Our hearts have to be changed for our life to truly have a prayer life. I mean, what does God say about us calling upon His name? The third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain, the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes His name in vain. How do we take the Lord's name in vain? Well, we take the Lord's name in vain when He is not our Lord. And we speak of Him. See? We must know Him to rightly reverence His name. Listen to what Brownlow North says in his book, A a Great um, Guff. He says, I believe that no greater breach of the third commandment ascends from earth into the ears of God than that which often ascends from the closet, from family circles, and on the Sabbath day from God's professing worshipers who can deny that multitudes who have been saved go up to their church on the Sabbath for no other reason than that it is their custom. Go on up expecting to be better for going up and totally forgetful that if they are not the better, they are the worse. Such multitudes have forgotten and perhaps have never known the scripture that says, if the word of the God, word of God is not upon those who hear it, a savior to life and unto death, it is a savior of death unto death. 
Yet do not a vast part of professing worshipers go up without any realization that they are going up to hear life and death. Do they even remember that when they pray, they are speaking to God and God hears them? And that when they hear His Word read and preached, God is speaking to them and expects them to listen and obey. Do they not rather go up utterly unsanctified and enter God's house of prayer and pray without a heart altogether prayerless? In a prayerless spirit, men go up to God's house of prayer and invoke God's special attention. For the attitude of prayer is in itself a prayer. And say as plainly as words could be spoken, O God, let thy eyes rest on me. God's eyes rest on all who put themselves in the attitude of prayer from the moment He bows his head and prays to the moment in which he leaves the place of worship. God's eye is never off the professing worshiper. And his ear is open, attending to what he says. And what does the eye of God often see and hear too often? He sees people professingly engaged in worship. Not only forgetful, but so absolute destitute of the fear of God that they pour forth from their lips a series of supplication from the things for which their heart feel no need, for things for which they have no desire, for things for which though they profess to ask, They would rather be without for things which God has offered them again and again and which they have again and again rejected. Can there be a greater blasphemy? Do you hear what he's saying? That we can blaspheme the name of God with our prayers if they are not coming from our heart. That has changed. The rich man's prayer was very earnest. He longed for that one drop of water. He had never prayed like that before. While on earth, he had ignored prayer. He'd gone day after day, month after month, year after year, ignoring the living water that was offered. And now, it was too late. He cries out for that drop of water that he cannot receive. He had not heeded the word of God. Come you to the waters. Whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life and freely drink. He had paid no attention to the gospel call. He never thought 
that they would come a day when he would plead for just a drop of water. But that day had come. And he realizes it is now too late. But for us here today, it's not too late. Drink of the water. Give yourself no rest until you have sought and found the living water which is available and gives you eternal life. Why would you leave this place today without it? When it's so freely offered, run to Christ. Run to the living water. Let us pray. Father, this is a awakening to the reality that all must face death one day. May we not dismiss it. May we consider the free offer of the gospel that is extended this day. May you be pleased to send your spirit and power to open eyes and unstop ears so that people might see and that they might hear that they might receive the living water. Be merciful. Be gracious. As only you can be. And cause us who are Christians, Father, to take this gospel and to proclaim it to those who need Christ. To warn them that there is a hell and that unless they repent, that they will spend eternity in that place. This we pray in Christ's name and for His sake.